Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for November 10th, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardow. Happy to bring you the Daily Journal's weekly podcast covering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. This week, we saw the first U.S. Supreme Court opinions of October term 2017, one full opinion and two summary dispositions. The former came in Hamer v. Neighborhood Housing Services of Chicago, in which Justice Ginsburg, in what she described as an easy application of precedent, explained the view of a unanimous court that a rule of appellate procedure, limiting the time in which notice of an appeal can be filed, is not a jurisdictional rule requiring dismissal if breached, but rather a mandatory claim processing rule sort of thing that can be waived or forfeited by a party if not timely challenged. In its two summary dispositions, the court reversed 9th and 11th Circuit rulings that had favored habeas petitioners. In our home circuit, the appellate panel had found that a California court erred when it allowed prosecutors to amend a criminal complaint to which a defendant had already pled in exchange for a 14-year sentence. The prosecution allowed the defendant to withdraw his plea, but eventually pled to the amended complaint and thereunder received a 25-year minimum sentence. A per curiam court said no SCOTUS case law had clearly established that such a defendant was entitled to the lower of those two sentences, and thus that habeas relief was improper. The other summary reversal will allow an execution to be carried out on a death row inmate whose treating psychologists say cannot recall the act he's being punished for, a grisly murder of a police officer committed more than 30 years ago. The justices all agreed that habeas relief was not due here, again, because no high court precedent demands it, though Justice Ginsburg, joined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, noted in a concurrence that the issue would warrant a full airing if brought on direct appeal, and Justice Breyer, in a lone concurrence, reiterated his now familiar refrain that, in his view, the death penalty, particularly with its attendant interminable delays, may violate the Eighth Amendment. In California Supreme Court, justices heard oral argument this week in a case bearing on the appellate rights of certain class action plaintiffs. Specifically, the court will wrestle with whether unnamed class members who did not intervene during a class action may nonetheless appeal when a lower court dismisses objections they file against class action dispositions, be them judgments or settlements. Today's guest, Ryan Wu, a senior counsel with Capstone Law APC, who often handles his firm's class action settlements, says that the court has an opportunity in this case to protect class action litigation against what he says is a fairly common occurrence of bad faith objectors trying to gum up class action resolutions with protracted appeals, perhaps seeking to extort class plaintiffs. Ryan also says the intermediate court here, the 4th District Court of Appeals, surprised many class action attorneys by dismissing a prominent line of case law in its ruling in order to dust off and reassert a 75-year-old two-page California High Court ruling that seems to disfavor the objector's position in this case. Before hearing from Ryan, though, let's get to our opening briefs. In a couple of cases that might eventually wind their way up to the Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit ruled on an immigration law appeal this week and heard oral argument in an establishment clause case. In the former, Judge Alex Kaczynski accused his colleagues of both lacking common sense and blowing a giant loophole in immigration law enforcement by broadly interpreting a section of the U.S. Code often invoked as a defense by individuals facing deportation. For its part, the majority, comprising judges Reinhardt and Wardlaw, noted that its approach has been endorsed by another court familiar with immigration enforcement, the Fifth Circuit. With more on that case, we're joined now by Daily Journal immigration reporter Chase DiFelici Antonio. Chase, welcome to the show. So uh, you covered the immigration beat for for the Daily Journal, and a pretty divided, uh, pretty vocally divided panel issued a ruling on Tuesday in an, in an immigration case, Saldivar, for Sessions. 
um, former Chief Judge Alex Kuczynski was the very obstreperous dissenter there, uh, concerned that the, the panel's ruling creates a giant loophole that could allow unauthorized immigrants to, to be pretty immune from removal. I'll get into kind of all the, the details as to, as to why uh, and how Judge Kaczynski thinks that loophole has been created. But let's get to the, the underlying facts here real quick first. Tell me about uh, Abraham Saldivar's entry into the U.S. back in 1993. I understand it was a pretty informal sort of thing, though I don't know, and you can tell me if this uh, – was established in the in the record or not? He apparently was sort of waved across by a border patrol agent, but received no other, no more official um, license to be in the country than that. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's about correct. Um, so, according to uh, immigration law and case law, if a, a border patrol officer does wave you across, it's it's considered coming into the country uh, through inspection, and uh, it's it's considered a legal entry as opposed to other, uh, you know non legal way of getting into the country. He that was in nineteen ninety three when, when he was ten years old. He uh claims uh, through his counsel that that's how he uh, entered the country, although they haven't really looked into that yet, um and probably will uh, once this goes back to the Board of Immigration Appeals. But he came in when he was ten years old um that way and then um uh, married a United States citizen in two thousand one has uh two excuse me, three United States citizen children. And um, he adjusted his status, which means he, he changed his, uh, his immigration status to that of a green card holder, which son as a lawful permanent resident, um, after he got married. Um, so he's not a citizen, never been a citizen. Um, and then in about 2012, he was, uh, he was convicted in California of uh, drug possession and um, paraphernalia possession as well. And so he was, he was ordered deported. And uh, that's kind of what brought us to uh, to our current situation here in the appeal in the Ninth Circuit. Great. So then, um, as a potential defense in the removal proceedings, um, Saldivar brings to bear uh, 8 U.S.C. section 1229B, subsection A. It's um, kind of central here. It seems uh, to provide a defense based on the amount of time uh, a person has been in the country. Tell me a bit more about what uh, what that section provides for and, and how it, it was, uh, how Saldivar hoped to use that as a defense here. Well, so, I mean, the way that the immigration uh, process works is you become more and more difficult to deport the, the more secure your status becomes. Essentially, the closer that you move to citizenship. So in this case, he has lawful permanent residency, which doesn't mean you cannot be deported, um, but it does give you certain rights and protections against deportation in the immigration code. So in this case, uh, this section of the U.S. Code says that um, you can't be deported if you meet these certain criteria. And those are that if you've been admitted for permanent residence for not less than five years, um, if you have not been convicted of an aggravated felony, which is different than what he was convicted of with a larger definition of those. And then there's also the issue of, which is central here, um, if you've been in the United States continuously for seven years after having been admitted, and this is the key phrase, in any status. And that's really what's at question here. Um, he is saying that he was uh, admitted uh, in in a status by virtue of being waived through this term that gets used by an immigration officer, or so he and his counsel claim. Um, and because he's been here continuously for seven years um, in, in legal status and um, as a permanent resident, he's saying that he cannot be he cannot be deported. Um, and that's kind of what's at issue here. Yeah, so obviously 1993 is longer than seven years ago. So if at that point he has gained uh, that any status level, 
then he would have met the, the requirement for that law. But if his um, status sort of starts in 2006 when he gets the lawful permanent resident status, um, then obviously that would not have reached a seven-year mark prior to that, that conviction he had in 2012. So essentially boiling it down, the question is whether any status in that statute means really just any status at all, whether documented, undocumented, or any sort of official legal status? Is that the, the dispute? Right. That's essentially why you have a split panel here, is that the majority here is saying that uh, they believe their interpretation, uh, which is actually based on a, a previous decision uh, from the Fifth Circuit as well, that, that any status includes legal and illegal, just a human being being in the United States under any immigration uh, status. Um, and so they're essentially agreeing with the prior case law on this. Um, the, the dissent here is essentially that, that that's patently ridiculous, um, as so Judge Kaczynski thinks. Kaczynski thinks that Congress couldn't have meant any status to have meant status that is outside of the law. Um, so that, that is kind of the, the central conflict here and, and one that uh, Kaczynski, in this case, is on the losing side of. So you mentioned the, the majority was citing some, some case law and some Fifth Circuit precedent, so it's safe to say they're not sort of uh, devoid of any legal precedent to, to make this decision or to make this ruling that uh, any status has that sort of broader uh, interpretation to apply to, to statuses that, that are undocumented or illegal. Right. So they, uh, even though this may seem an unusual decision, kind of at first blush, um, the Fifth Circuit says, uh, the phrase in any status uh, plainly encompasses every status recognized by immigration status as lawful or unlawful. Um, and that is uh, almost identical, uh, for all intents and purposes here to what, to what they're dealing with here. Um, and so it's, it's really a, a reading of that in any status language and how broadly they want to interpret that. But because in this case, the Ninth Circuit does have some, uh, case law that they can turn to, they're, they're, they're agreeing with their, with their sister court in, in the Fifth Circuit. Okay. Uh, and maybe just one more about the, the Kaczynski dissent. What What is he mostly relying on in, in his reasoning? He seems to appeal to, to common sense pretty often to make sort of policy arguments. Um, is he also uh, citing some precedent? What uh, What's sort of the, at the at the heart of, of his dissent? And, and what exactly is the loophole he's he's so concerned about? Is, is he think that... Um, that, that the panel's reasoning and the panel's ruling creates a, almost a immunity to anyone that's been in the country for longer than seven years, uh, even if the entire time they uh, have been you had a undocumented status. Right. So his um, his dissent really does he uses the common sense rely on uh, a, just a, a different and what he's saying is is more a direct and literal reading of the United status language. He's, he's saying that he, he doesn't believe uh, that Congress intended to grant. Uh, protections to people who uh, came into the country without authorization. Uh, and he's saying that he doesn't think that that could have been the intent of the federal government when, when they made these laws. This laws protect certain people who have earned or gained certain immigration benefits um, and, and, not, uh, and not certain people who have not. So what he's saying essentially as far as what the loophole is, is that because in this case specifically, Saldivar and they're saying I was waived in through his counsel that he was allowed into the country. Um, but there hasn't really been any uh, investigation into that that would probably take place, as I said. Let's go back to those immigration appeals. But uh, 
they're essentially believing him for the, for the purpose of this case. And so the issue here is that he's concerned in the future people will be able to just say that and um, apply this case law that they were they were waived into the country and then they if they're able to establish uh, uh, seven years of being in the country legally and, and other issues under the statute um, that they'll be able to uh, get to remain in the country and give, be given certain immunities from deportation um, even if they're not necessarily telling the truth. Okay, well, it sounds like more uh, is to is to come in this case. Headed back now to the Board of Immigration Appeals, unless, uh, of course, in the in the interim, the Ninth Circuit on Bank decides to to take it up. But we'll leave it there for now. Immigration reporter Chase DiFelici Antonio, thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Good talk with you. case that could decide the constitutionality of prayer invocations at school board meetings across nine states and two U.S. territories, a panel again comprising judges Reinhardt and Wardlaw, along with visiting Judge Wiley Young Daniel from Colorado, heard arguments Wednesday over Chino Unified School District's use of prayer at its school board meetings. Here to tell us a bit more about that is our own Ninth Circuit reporter, Nick Sonnenberg. Nick, welcome to the show. Brian, thank you for having me. In this case, the Freedom from Religion versus Chino Valley Unified School District argued sleep before the Ninth Circuit uh, involves school and, and prayer, but we're not talking about kind of the, the situation that one might call to mind as prayer during the school day. This is um, prayer in a, in a different context where we're talking about religious invocations at, at school board meetings. Did I have that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, it's not school in or prayer in school classroom or that setting. What we have here are school board meetings um, for the district of Chino Valley. It's important to note that I guess, in essence, there are two kind of uh, meetings at, at issue in this case. Before the initial complaint was filed, um, board members would uh, lead the prayers, um, and at the end of meetings, they would regularly cite Bible passages um, and offer sort of political commentary with a religious tone. At one point, the uh, school board president said, our lives begin in the hospital and end in the church. Um, the complaint said he urged everyone who does not know Jesus Christ to go and find him. Um, now, after the complaint was filed, the school board changed its policy um, and, and adopted a policy that prevented a school board members from, quote, proselytizing and said that they had to be religiously neutral. Um, it also formalized the prayer tradition um, by inviting religious members from a variety of religious backgrounds to give the invocation. But it does uh, provide a carve-out for uh, situations when clergy members are, are unavailable and board members may give the invocation then. I think it's also important to note, and, and the parties have addressed this, that students were regularly present at these meetings. There was a student member of the board whose participation meetings was not mandatory but did happen. Um, and students would regularly attend these meetings to find out what was going on in their district. So I think more than one judge on this panel referred to to some of the uh, activities at these meetings as egregious. Is that is that term used to describe the invocations that occurred before those changes in policy that you mentioned? Um, and do those do those changes render the the appeal moot? Is that a point argued over at the at oral argument? Well, um, so two judges, Judge Wiley Young Daniel, who's a visiting judge from the District of Colorado, and Judge Kim McLean Wardlaw, both called the facts of the case egregious during the arguments uh, this week. 
they didn't specify what they found particularly objectionable, so it's really just conjecture as to what they found egregious. Um, but it is important to note that Robert Tyler, the attorney representing the school district, told the court that they were not appealing uh, District Judge Bernal's finding that the extra religious commentary at the end of meetings was unconstitutional. Um, they are merely uh, appealing the ruling as to the invocation at the beginning of meetings. Um, now, and so, and so they've, they've posited that the appeal could be rendered moot. Wardlaw, though, at one point said that if they were to render the appeal moot and dismiss the case, uh, the district could easily go back and reverse the uh, policy that they've adopted since the complaint was filed. So it seems unlikely that the Ninth Circuit would, would dismiss this as moot. A defense aside from mootness grounds, that was brought to bear by the school board is that there is an, an exception to legislative bodies. It's been recognized by the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, so that's a, for example, Congress can begin its session with with a prayer. Um, tell me about that exception. The arguments over whether you know, that has application here uh, in, in this context. Right. So in uh, two cases, Town of Greece versus Galloway and Marsh versus Chambers, the Supreme Court has said that that there is an exception for legislative bodies uh, in terms of allowing uh, meetings to begin with an invocation or a prayer. Um, and so naturally, the defendant school district has argued that um, the Chino Valley School District or school, school districts at large really are legislative bodies that are exempt um, from a, a separation of church and state in terms of uh, invocations. Uh, they cited California law uh, specifically the Brown Act, which um, defines school districts as legislative bodies and said that uh, because it's been defined as such, they're exempt under this uh, Supreme Court case law. Um, but the plaintiffs noted or tried to, I, I guess, differentiate um, the school board from the legislative bodies at issue in the Supreme Court cases. The plaintiff's lawyer said that, you know, legislative bodies are beholden to their constituents and that they answer to them, and, and constituents can, can replace who, the people who are there, but the, the power dynamic between a, a school district board and the students that it administers is entirely different because students don't really have a say in who ends up on the school board, and so comparing those two is not appropriate. Um, and they also noted that the Brown Act uh, pertains to the public access of certain meetings, and so they said that the court should look at that classification as a narrow classification and that it's not a broad classification uh, for the purposes of the exception. Okay, now um, on on the menu, sort of for for the the panel here, is the option to to make a fairly broad ruling to say prayers generally have no place in a, a public school board meeting, um, or uh, they could choose to make a more limited ruling and and just hone in on the the facts here and say in this in this specific instance the activities were improper. Um, did the panel seem to be grappling? With that option at oral argument, did um, they give any, any indication as to which way they might be leaning? Well, when Wardlaw made her uh, egregious commentary, she noted or, or said it in, in light of this debate. She said, you know, the, the facts of this case are particularly egregious. Couldn't we just issue a narrow ruling? Um, and so that was the main uh, the main point of debate in terms of narrow versus broad. The, the plaintiffs, Freedom from Religious Foundation, Religion Foundation, 
are arguing that no, this decision needs to be broad sweeping and say that every public school district throughout the entire Ninth Circuit should be barred from starting its meetings with these invocations. Um, so it's not really clear how the Ninth Circuit will come down on this issue. Um, presumably, Wardlaw could suggest that a uh, that a narrow ruling is appropriate given her comment, but. Um, as far as what a narrow ruling really means, that's up to the attorneys who interpret it later under other oral arguments. Um, if if a broader ruling was to be to be rendered, um, saying something along the lines of prayer is forbidden from school board meetings, um, that would create a, a circuit split, right? The Fifth Circuit has dealt with roughly the same question. Right. Uh, in March, uh, the Fifth Circuit ruled that um, invocations before school board meetings are uh, constitutionally permissible under the legislative exception um, doctrine. It's interesting to note that the invocations there are a little bit different. Um, the, the, the issue there were school board meetings that would begin with reflections from students. So these were students who were actually giving these reflections, and they weren't always prayers, but on occasion were. And the Fifth Circuit said that those were permissible. Um, it's interesting to note that there is a cert petition pending in that case, um, and there has been no answer from the Supreme Court yet. But Reinhardt, uh, Judge Reinhardt, who filled out the third judge on the panel, said during our oral arguments, uh, half-jokingly, that he had no issue creating a circuit split. Um, and he at one point joked and said that we might, or the Ninth Circuit should possibly tell the Supreme Court what the right answer in this issue is. It's not something the Ninth Circuit has tried to do for to, to varying degrees of success, so we'll see how, how this one uh, works out for them. Uh, for now, Nick Sonnenberg, our Ninth Circuit reporter. Thanks for being on the show, Nick. Thanks for having me, Brian. The California Supreme Court had a busy week in Sacramento, hearing oral arguments in five cases over two days. One appeal on the appellate rights of certain class action members stands to bear meaningfully on representative actions in the state and on the process of objecting to the judgments and settlements in such cases, which, according to our next guest, Ryan Wu, a senior counsel with Capstone Law APC, is a process that's often abused by objectors more interested in holding class action cases hostage for a quick ransom than they are in ensuring a just class remedy. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Brian. So in this case, Hernandez Restoration Hardware argued on Tuesday in Sacramento before the California Supreme Court, we're dealing with the question of the rights on appeal, the, the ability of unnamed class members in, in class action litigation to, to object, uh, and then to, if they, they lose that, that objection, their, their, their ability to, uh, to appeal it. Um, you, uh, you work in class action litigation on the, on the plaintiff side, consumer employment suits and, and the like. Um, maybe before kind of digging into the, the legal aspects of that particular question, I'd like to start with a, a broader kind of policy consideration that you've, you've written about in regard to un, unnamed class members that, that do object. And sometimes um, the sorts of attorneys that might just sort of make a living out of objecting over the results of class action suits, perhaps not always in good faith, you say, um, perhaps instead to um, hold hostage uh, litigation and perhaps extract some sort of um, concessions or almost a ransom from the, say, plaintiff attorneys that are looking to to finally conclude uh, what luckily is a pretty long litigation. Um, tell me about that, uh, that sort of policy aspect that overhangs this case, the, the nature of a objections of this sort? Yeah, sure, Brian. Um, 
Yeah, this is one of the loopholes in the class action process. Um, so once a settlement has been reached, class members will receive a notice advising them whether they can opt out, which means that they, you know, the settlement wouldn't affect them, they wouldn't release any claim, but wouldn't be entitled to any benefits, or they can object to the settlement as class members. Um, the objection is meant to assist the court in improving the settlement. So, um, you know, if there is an issue regarding, um, you know, conflicts between classes, subclasses, or, um, you know, there's, there's something that's unfair about the benefits or the releases overbroad, um, the objector can bring that to the court's attention. Um, and uh, sometimes the court will ask the parties to uh, revise the agreement or uh, do something else. Um, if the if the settlement is truly terrible for class members, you know the the, the court can you know disapprove. Um, so you know the objection is definitely a very uh, it's an important part of the process. The problem is, you know, because there are, uh, in federal court at least, um, there are appellate rights attached to the objections, um, you know, you, you know, at some point people figured out that, that you gain a lot of leverage by filing an objection and then um, just appealing or threatening to appeal. So um, now we have this sort of cottage in- industry of professional objectors who file, you know, boilerplate objections. You can file, just, you know, a two-page objection with just generic arguments, and then threaten to appeal. Um, the once, you know, if if they do appeal, the problem is, you know, things are stayed. Um, let's say we have a settlement. But you know, uh, I do a lot of car um, class actions. So let's say we have a, a settlement in a car case. Um, the relief could be, you know, a free repair to class members for a defect. Um, but that relief is going to be stayed when um, when there's an appeal. So, um, you know, class members wouldn't be able to get that relief. Uh, they may end up selling their cars before they can get the relief. Um, you know, that presents a problem for class members. And then on the side of class counsel, you know, we generally do the stuff on a contingency basis, so we're advancing costs and fees. And if it takes two years to sort of recover our, our fees on this, um, you know, you know, you you certain firms will be strapped for money. So, um, yeah, so you know, objectors understand that, so they're just sort of you know exerting this leverage to try to get a piece of piece of the pie, and, and they call it. You know, so courts have called it, you know, a tax on class action settlements. Um, in the restoration hardware case, there was actually an amicus brief from the consumer attorneys of California that sort of delved into this in great detail. And, you know, they cited cases that say stuff like um, professional objectors' conduct resembles scavenger ants on a jelly roll, scrambling <laughs> to extort money from approved settlements. So, you know, courts, like, understand that this is, uh, unacceptable behavior, but it's it's hard to deal with. In in that situation that you described, perhaps a bad faith objection um, being filed is the leverage that's sought used to maybe reapportion the the amount of like a, say a settlement that would be going to um, attorneys' fees and and to the classes to to make the piece of the pie bigger for uh, the, the class members or that specific objector. Yeah. Well, you know, here's the thing. Um, and, and they're trying to reform this, 
But what ends up happening a lot of times is that, um, you know, they file a notice of appeal, um, you know, the professional objector. Um, you end up cutting a deal to dismiss the appeal. So, you know, the attorney, the class counsel might give them, you know, let's say $50,000. They dismiss the appeal. Um, the order ends up being affirmed. Nobody sort of is, is any wiser. Um, you know, this, this, none of this information is, is, uh, obligated to be disclosed to the court. So, um, you know, because objectors understand that, that also provides a lot of leverage for, uh, for them. Um, I know that, um, there's a proposed rule, uh, to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, uh, 23E5B, uh, which would require court approval of any payments to objectors or their counsel. Um, that's, I think that's, uh, going to be implemented. So that's a way for, um, for, uh, the court, the rules to sort of, you know, put, you know, ha- have some sunlight on, on, on this practice and, and maybe discourage, uh, professional objectors. But, you know, we don't have that right now. And so that they're not, you know, they're just sort of, trying to sort of get, get extract a fee, um, you know, in the shadow. So certainly uh, the case here, Hernandez for Restoration Hardware, could undercut that that leverage that, that folks might attempt to wield. Um, and we'll get into to just uh, whether it seems that that might happen or not based on based on this week's oral argument. But maybe we'll walk through quickly um, the, the underlying facts here. They, this case starts with some violations of the, the Song-Beverly Credit Card Act, right? And then it proceeds to a, a bench... Um, trial uh, where it uh, reaches a, a, a judgment, correct? Yeah. Uh, so this is a case uh, filed in 2008 under the Song-Beverly Credit Card Act, uh, which makes it illegal for uh, retailers to obtain and record consumer zip codes and credit card purchases. Um, there are you know, statu- statutory violations of $30 per violation, um, statutory penalties of $30 per violation. So um, the case was certified. Class notice went out. They it proceeded to a bench trial, uh, and the plaintiffs ultimately obtained a judgment of uh, a little over thirty-six million dollars, which is a you know tremendous result in in a case like this. Um, and uh, ultimately, the plaintiffs' counsel and defendant um, agreed to. Um, to sort of a procedure where, where they're going to they're going to apply for 25 percent of the of the total recovery as attorney's fees. Um, plaintiffs counsel then moved uh, for attorney's fees, and the trial court awarded 25 percent of the 36 million um, uh, verdict as attorney's fees. Okay, now at, at this point, Francesca Muller steps in to object. She's not a, a named plaintiff who had not intervened in the lawsuit. Prior to this point, uh, what was the the substance of her uh, objection? Yeah, so she um, it, it's a little bit unusual. I mean, she uh, class notice you know uh, went out in the middle of the case when the class was certified. She the class notice um, advised class members that they can appear uh, with an deter- with their own individual attorney if they wished. Um, otherwise, class counsel would represent the unnamed class members. So she actually. Um, had uh, Schoenbrunn, her uh, counsel, appear. So they were just sort of sitting back throughout the case, um, just watching the action unfold. 
And then um, after the motion for attorney's fees was filed, uh, they sort of, you know, then sort of making hay, uh, objecting to um, the fact, objecting to uh, the fee application not providing notice to all class members. Um, so uh, Mueller wanted, uh, you know, uh, notice to all class members uh, of the attorney's fees application, the amount, so forth. Um, that ended up getting overruled. And Mueller also um, wanted to have the court uh, um, apportion fees by the lodestar multiplier method rather than the percentage method, which is what the plaintiff's counsel sought. That was also overruled. And um, I should mention that Schoenbrunn, um, the attorney here, um, was is a, a sort of an anti-class action um, activist. And uh, he was also the attorney in Lafitte versus Robert Half, another case that went to the California Supreme Court. And uh, he there he made the argument that um, the California courts cannot award fees under the percentage approach, but must do so under the Lodestar approach. And uh, he lost that battle um, in Lafitte, which was from a couple of years ago. Okay, yeah, I do, do recall that one. Um, and so now her, her objections are... Are overruled, and of course that triggers the uh, potential right to appeal that uh, the, um, overruling of her objections. But it uh, sort of brings into play the, the Code of Civil Procedure that's pertinent here, Section 902, um, which will clarify, I guess, sort of whether or not the, the appellate rights exist for a person in her situation. Uh, what, what exactly does that uh, that statute, Section 902, provide? Well, yeah, it it confers appellate standing, and it says that uh, a party that's grieved may appeal. So, um, you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Um, the Court of Appeal sort of focused on the statutory language of Section 902, um, particularly whether uh, the um, whether Mueller was a party. Um, it's settled law that unnamed class members are not technically parties to the action. You know, they're not on the caption, um, they're generally just represented by class, the class representative and, the, and class counsel, um, and this is how class actions work. So, um, you know, there's the idea that that class members can't, you know, who have objected can appeal, but that doesn't. That seems in consonant. Uh, when we're actually analyzing the language of um, CCP Section 902. So that's where the intermediate court um, sort of focused on. And in reinforcing its its ruling, the, the Fourth District Court of Appeal also relied pretty strongly on a 75-year-old ruling from the California Supreme Court, Eggert for a specific state, saying it was on all fours with this one and um, led to its, its decision. What uh, what exactly was going on in that case, and how did it interpret Section 902, and what, why is it a, an apt uh, precedent for the Fourth District to apply here in its view? Well, you know, Eggert was, you know, a very early class action uh, involved um, uh, savings and loan company and, and certi- certificate holders. It's a, actually just a two-page decision. Um, and I don't think Section 902 was in the books at the time, but the court uh, in Eggert said that, you know, there's, it's a rule of practice that only a party to the record can appeal. So, and then the court, um, you know, um, addressed these two objectors uh, who were class members 
um, who tried to appeal and said they uh, should have intervened or moved to vacate judgment, then they would have become parties because they're not parties. They can't appeal from the judgment. Um, so this is, you know, something that I think was gathering dust in, in the libraries. I, I haven't seen Eggert um, cited in, in a long time. Um, and, you know, but somehow the parties uh, dusted it off and, and uh, made use of it. Okay, now that um, was the, the favored case to, to be invoked here by the, the Fourth District, but it, it uh, was at the it then sort of disfavored some, some more recent class action case law that uh, used a kind of a more permissive approach to, to unnamed class members objecting. One prominent one from the, the Second District, Trotsky versus Los Angeles Federal Savings and Loan. What is the, the reasoning in that case and its line? It, it would have been more permissive and sort of uh, smiled more favorably upon the ability of uh, someone like Mueller to, um, to appeal the dismissal of her uh, objection, right? Yeah. I mean, the... I, I should say that you know I think I think Restoration Hardware, the the fourth fourth uh, court of appeal fourth district court of appeal case actually threw a lot of um, practitioners for a loop because you know we've always uh, followed Trotsky and the Trotsky line of cases and we've always assumed that class members um, you know who objected have have the right to appeal from that objection. So, um, you know, one reason was that, um, you know, just people didn't deal with Eggert, including Trotsky. Trotsky didn't address Eggert. Um, the reasoning of Trotsky was based um, on the notion that class members were aggrieved. Um, looking at the, the language of Section 902, they just focused on aggrieved without actually without actually analyzing whether or not um, class members were a party. So, um, you know, the the um, the court in Hernandez, the intermediate court, said that well, you know, Trotsky should have looked at the language of of 902 in whole, um, should have analyzed whether or not class members were a party, um, and. Moreover, um, Eggert is a California Supreme Court case, and there, there's, you know, Trotsky in in the courts in the California court system, um, the court of appeal is uh, isn't bound by another court of appeals decision, but is bound by the California Supreme Court's decision. So the the court of appeal in in Hernandez versus uh, Restoration Hardware said, you know, we're bound by Eggert. And, um, you know, Trotsky, Trotsky should have addressed Eggert and, um, in, and also that the analysis, uh, on Section 902 was erroneous. Um, and, you know, that seemed like, uh, it's very, very strong reasoning because, you know, you really can't depart from a case that's on all fours. So. One, one distinction between those two cases, Eggert and, and Trotsky, probably am, among others, um, but one distinction that I, I'm not sure, I guess, how fully the Fourth District reckons with here is that one, um, Eggert dealt with a judgment, and like in the case here, and and, and Trotsky deals with a class action settlement. Um, and from the commentary I've read, uh, including yours, it, it seems like folks uh, remain unclear as to whether the Fourth District is saying that in, 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 in all class actions in, in both judgments and settlements, this rule that they're interpreting from Eggert uh, should should apply that non-unnamed um, members 
um, don't have appellate standing in, in these kind of circumstances. Um, is it certain based on, on the Court of Appeals ruling whether there is a, a line to be drawn between those two types of class actions, whether there's a judgment or there's a settlement? Well, the, the language of Hernandez is, is pretty broad, right? And, and if you sort of follow its reasoning um, on Section 902, um, it sounds like objectors um, to either settlements or uh, judgments would not be able to appeal. Um, I think that, um, you know, having spoken to um, plaintiff's counsel in this case, um, they were trying to thread the needle. And I think, um, you know, threading the needle can be done here. Right? You know, threading the needle meaning um, you know, having uh, a drawing a distinction between um, Eggert and Trotsky by um, by sort of not allowing objectors to judgments uh, from from appealing on on that objection, but allowing objections uh, to to class action settlements from uh, being able to appeal that. In your view, is there some legal or policy basis for for those two situations being meaningfully different uh, between it being proper for objectors to appeal um, settlements but, but not judgments? Well, you know, um, when, you're, when you've litigated a case to judgment, typically, you know, sometime in, uh, in, in the middle of the, cla- of the action, you would have certified the case, you would have sent out class notice, and the class notice would have said that um, advised class members that, you know, you are bound by whatever happens unless you decide to opt out. So, um, you know, class members who don't opt out are, you know, bound by um, um, whatever happens, which is, you know, if, it, if whatever judgment or verdict uh, arises from that case, uh, they're bound. Um, so I think, I think you can say that, that people who, uh, who like um, Mueller, end up you know, lying in wait and then and then objecting at the very end uh, isn't following uh, what they should have done in the at the class notice stage, which is you know opt out or or uh, be bound. Um, whereas I think you know for class action settlements, um, especially for you know there are a lot of settlements that that occur uh, before contested uh, certification. So oftentimes, you know, class members, the first time they're aware of, of the class action at all is when they get the class uh, settlement notice. So um, at that point, you know, they, you know, they have the right to opt out or object. And, uh, but given that, you know, basically they'll have, you know, 30 days, 45 days to do so. Um, and that's the first time they can sort of, sort of um, inject themselves into the case. Um, I think that there's there's sound policy basis for letting them object and then um, appeal. Okay, one one other policy point: uh, the the fourth district court uh, mentions that you know beyond the persuasive persuasiveness of Eggert, there's the policy rationale that um, it would engender kind of the more orderly administration of class action lawsuits if objectors um, like Ms. Mueller would have to intervene and become a party to the lawsuit. Um, I guess two questions is, is how much sort of more orderly do you think that, that would make these sorts of uh, uh, litigations? And, and would that, in fact, you know, filter out kind of the bad faith objectors that, that you think uh, can often plague the system here? 
Yeah, I'm not entirely sure that it would make things more orderly. I think I think uh, you know I supervise class action settlements um, for my firm, and you know uh, the the procedure is pretty clear, right? We we send out class notice. Um, you know, class members will have will be given a set of time to to object or opt out, and if they don't object, then we know that you know this class action uh, has no objectors, and and there likely wouldn't be any appeals from from that. Um, if you sort of allow for intervention, intervention is based on. Um, you know, the, the timing for intervention is based on when you know that your rights are being compromised. And that could be, you know, at any time. So, so that I think, I think in some ways it may, uh, you know, create some uncertainty if the, uh, Hernandez, uh, rule is affirmed by the California Supreme Court. Uh, on the other hand, I do like that um they the the rule that uh, you know forcing uh, objectors to intervene in order to appeal um i think that rule would would make objectors have to sort of craft something um that's substantive uh it would would require a lot more effort so you know to the extent that you have all these serial objectors with like their boilerplate uh, template that they fire off whenever um, they see a class action settlement that they can, you know, object to. Um, you know, I think I think we would we would uh, be able to stymie people trying to make a fast buck, and you know, at least some of these serial objectors would probably go away just because they don't want to make that effort. Okay, taking taking a step outside of California state court for just a second, I think you might have mentioned earlier um, that. that in, in federal court, this this right is more firmly recognized. Uh, or what what is the approach in other jurisdictions, say the Ninth Circuit, or has the U.S. Supreme Court spoken as to this question at, at all? Yeah, um, there's a case called Devlin, which uh, which allowed for objectors to um, to appeal. Um, in the Ninth Circuit, there's a case called Powers for v. Eichen, which also did so. Um, and you know the. Hernandez, uh, the intermediate court, um, you know, recognized that that federal federal jurisdictions um, have a different approach, but that doesn't bind uh, California uh, appellate rules. Okay, uh, last one, maybe just getting into into the arguments from this week or Tuesday. Um, to the extent you're familiar with them, what the, were sort of the principal arguments that were brought to bear? By, by the two sides and and how receptive did the court seem seem to be to them yeah I think I think uh, a lot of the battle was just on the the viability of Eggert um, you know uh, sh- um, the objector um, insisted that Eggert uh, is outdated it's it's old law it doesn't comport with um, sort of federal practice and, and the practice of um, California um, over the last you know 20 years. And so it should be overruled. Um, the, uh, from what I understand from, from the reporting and from speaking to some of the people who were there, um, the court was pretty disturbed that none of the, none of the, um, the court of appeal decisions, um, ever addressed Eggert. You know, I think, I think they were kind of insulted that, you know, uh, Binding California Supreme Court decision um, on point um, was never dealt with by any of these other other cases. Um, 
So, um, you know, it sounds like the court might uphold Eggert in some form. And um, right now, I think the question is whether or not they're going to draw a distinction between, um, you know, a case litigated to judgment versus a class action settlement. Um, but, you know, I'd like, I need a caveat that by saying that, you know, um, I was, uh, one of the attorneys in two California Supreme Court cases, um, that where a decision was issued, uh, this year. Um, and we were trying to read, uh, tea leaves at oral argument in, you know, in Williams versus Superior Court, a, a PAGA case, uh, Justice Werdegar, you know, had hammered us with, with very skeptical questions. And she actually ended up authoring, uh, a, fa- a very favorable opinion. Um, and the, and the same thing in McGill versus Citibank where Justice Chin had very tough questions and we were counting him as a no and then he actually authored the, the opinion in our favor. So you just never know. Um, you know, I think, I think, you know, having having practiced in the California Supreme Court, you know, it's fun to read the the tea leaves, but um, they can just throw a curveball at you. Sure. Yeah, always pretty hazardous trying to forecast uh, judicial decisions. So I appreciate you uh, giving it uh, your best shot for us here. Uh, Ryan Wu, Senior Counsel with Capstone Law APC. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. And with that, our show for November 10th, 2017 is complete. I'm Brian Cardow. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.